Hey everyone, this is Danny Rocket from the Sun Ranto Show and Bleed Cubby Blue. And before I play you my interview with uh, Cubs catcher John Baker, I'd like to invite you all to come and join us on John Baker Day. Observed on Saturday, August 19th at 11 a.m. at the Nisei Lounge. So here's what's going on. John Baker will join me and Corey and Andy from the IVNV podcast with writers from Cubs Insider and Bleacher Nation. We're going to have raffles and games and a little Q&A with John. And we're going to have music and T-shirts and artwork and bobbleheads and beer. Well, yeah, we're going to drink some beer. So uh, why are we throwing this party with John Baker? Well, we're going to raise money for people who need it. See, every single dime we make from our raffle and bobbleheads and artwork and T-shirts and ticket sales is donated to Cubs Charities and Joe Madden's Hazleton Integration Project, who has donated us our signature prize this year, four of Joe Madden's personal seats and field passes against the Pirates on August 28th. And uh, Joe's even going to come say hi if he can, so... Uh, the auction is only online, and the winner is going to be announced on August 19th at John Baker Day at the Nisei Lounge. So uh, here's how to find the auction, and uh, if you want to join us, here's how to join us on John Baker Day. So uh, go to sunranto.com, and you click on the John Baker Day link on the homepage. That's S-O-N-R-A-N-T-O.com, like uh, Ron Santo, but with the R and the S switched, Sunranto. Click the John Baker Day link and all the info that you'll need will be right there about how you can bid on the auction or how you can buy tickets. So, uh, Or you could just search us and look us up on Facebook on the John Baker Day event page because we're going to be live streaming the event. And uh, there's lots of ways to find us. Bleed Cubby Blue, Sun Ranto, Ivy Envy, Cubs Insider, or just, just Google it. But come out to Nisei Lounge on August 19th and, uh, I don't know, be a part of it. So it's only 20 bucks, and all the dough goes to make the world better. So half the tickets have already been sold. So as they say in the business, buy now. So now I'm going to shut up, and I'll play the interview I did with the wise and witty John Baker. Here goes. In 2014, it was a year when the Cubs went 73-89. and 89. Uh, The Cubs catcher John Baker happened to make an indelible imprint on the city of Chicago in what I think most people thought was a disappointing year if you're a Chicago Cubs fan. Uh, John played guitar to entertain his teammates during rain delays. He pretended to French kiss Hector Rondon after a Cubs win. And uh, most notably, he uh, he pitched uh, for the first time in his seven-year Major League career in the 16th inning of a game against the Rockies on July 29th, uh, which, by the way, was the longest game uh, time-wise in Cubs history at six hours and 27 minutes. Um, and John came out and he pitched, he faced the minimum, uh, he induced a double play, then he scored the winning run after drawing a leadoff walk in the bottom of the 16th, and, uh, well, he scored on a Starlin Castro sacrifice fly, and forever and henceforth, uh, that day, July 29th, is known as John Baker Day, a day where we celebrate the achievements of an unlikely hero. So, John spent only one year as a Cubs player, but being the only position player ever in Cubs history to pitch and get the win, that was enough to thrust him into Cubs legend status. So I'd like to welcome to the Sun Ranto Show, uh, former Cubs catcher and current Cubs mental skills coordinator, uh, John Baker. John, thanks for coming on the Sun Ranto Show. Appreciate oh, you being you so, on here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank that, you so much for having me. 
that was the longest intro I think I've ever given anybody because you're the only person that's ever been on this show that's ever done anything of, mer- <laughs> of merit. <laughs> so, I disagree. I, I'm sure. I, I'm sure. We, I'm sure we could find. Uh, I'm sure we could find falsity in that statement. I'm sure that you've had some good guests on before. Yeah, no, I, we've had plenty of great guests, but uh, but uh, you are by far the most infamous and uh, the only player actually to ever come on the show. So thanks for coming on. And I think we should just start with uh, kind of the nitty gritty. And uh, let tell me about July 29, 2014, the night you pitched, you got the win. Uh, did you know you were going to pitch? At what point did that happen? Was this discussed at all earlier in the year that this might happen? Uh, was it completely unexpected out of the blue? And how did it all how did it all come about? Well, I think that whole season was kind of completely unexpected for in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, going into that year, uh, new manager Rick Renneria, who only ended up having one season there, uh, new new coaching staff turnover, a lot of different players, uh, and then some kind of key acquisitions that began to make their names for themselves in the big league. So I, when we got to that point in July, we realized, I think our team had realized, that we, that we were better, uh, and our younger players especially were a whole lot better than the rest of baseball was giving us credit for, and that we were going to be good. And we, and we were looking for, I, I think, something kind of to push us uh, over the edge. Um, you, you know, the, the kids that had come up in this organization had been used to losing. Um, you know, if you look at the early part of Anthony Rizzo's career, they were used to losing, and that was acceptable there. And if you look at the history of the Chicago Cubs and the things that Mr. Wrigley said, you know, about build a pretty place and serve beer and people will show up. It doesn't matter uh, if you win or lose. And that whole season was spent uh, through Rick Renneria, uh, under the guidance of Theo Epstein, and through the veteran players like myself. That whole reason, that whole season was spent reprioritizing winning baseball games, and and that's what we actually wanted to do, and that's what the Cubs franchise wanted to stand for. Uh, and so, yeah. Now fast forward to you know two thirds of the way through the season, and after the All Star break, and we're playing the Rockies for the battle of not last place. I think at the time <laughs> for not the worst record uh, in, in baseball and we're, we're playing them. Yeah. And our bullpen had been depleted. You know, guys have been pitching a lot. Uh, our starting pitching had really struggled. And so about the 10th or 11th inning, we kind of realized, I think maybe it was either, I think Hector Rondon was unavailable. And so we knew that once stroke pitched in the game, there really wasn't anybody else. We weren't going to run uh, one of our, we were going to run Jake Arrieta out there in 2014, you know, on, on a weird, weird times rest. Uh, and as, as I, you know, kind of glanced around that dugout, I realized that I was the most expendable person there, <laughs> that, that, that if I got on the mound and blew my arm out, it didn't really matter. We could call up Eli Whiteside or Rafael Lopez or, you know, one of another line of, of catching talent that we had in the minor leagues at the time that could do a serviceable job. Um, and so I knew that it was going to be me uh, if something like that happened. And they asked me in around the 11th or the 12th, hey, would you pitch if, you know, if we got there? And I laughed. And would I pitch? Of course I'd pitch. What am I going to say, no? Uh, <laughs> like I say, yeah, so I was looking forward to it. So I actually went down and warmed up. I got in trouble for running out on the field. I said, what are we going to give away our strategy? <laughs> We're going to give it away. I'm going to go out there and throw batting practice. The secret uh, weapon. Yeah. Oh man. They, they, they really, they got mad. Like, Oh, what are you doing? Why'd you run down there right there? I'm like, well, first of all, nobody on the other team's paying attention. They probably thought it was a joke. And, and most of the people have, 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 have drank too many Bud Light Lime Maritas and they can't even see right now that how late this game is going on. So let's just, uh, you know, let's just relax everyone. But yeah, no, it was fun. Then I went down later in the game. I knew I was going to pitch for sure. They were like, Hey, this is Strope's last inning. Um, go get hot. And then I got excited because, you know, who wouldn't want to, 
live live a dream like that. I think it's very similar to it'd be very similar to somebody. Yeah, I, I played baseball, but I didn't practice doing what I was doing. So I hit and I caught and I ran the bases. And I did all those things. Took ground balls even, but man, putting my foot on the rubber and actually throwing the ball, I was I was the equivalent to dragging somebody out of men's league. Uh, and putting them on it, putting them in a Cubs uniform in Wrigley Field, and putting them on the mound because I had so little experience. I really kind of felt like it bonded me to uh, just the regular fan. That's what I felt like on the field. I felt like the fan got a shot to do something crazy. And fortunately for me, uh, it worked out. And when I say it worked out, working out for me, like my end goal of that experience was not to necessarily get the win. I didn't even think about that. My goal was to not get hit in the face with a line drive because I'm telling you right now, it's so much closer. It's so 60 feet, six inches when you're standing on the mound with no helmet, no catcher's gear, no bat, you know, no elbow guard. I'm just standing out there with a glove with Chris Coughlin's glove on the mound and looking home going like, damn, that guy's way too close. I'm not throwing him. I'm not throwing anybody anything outside because I do not want to get hit in the face. And that was my that was my biggest fear. And that was probably like my the motivating factor for how I tried to pitch like I did. Well, you got you got the foul out in that game in that inning, and then uh, you walked a guy, and then you got a double play. So uh, apparently, you have some good ground ball stuff, and we <laughs> in, induce inducing real weak contact, John. I think it was I think it was Christian Adamas's major league debut too. The guy with the double play. I think that might have been his. <laughs> it was either his first or second at bat in the big leagues. Was was he faced not Roy Halladay but John Baker? Well, that's uh, that's at least memorable for him. Uh, yeah, you. It, uh, I guess uh, I was reading through some of the articles uh, about that night, and uh, you had said that it's one of those things that when you when do you get a chance to do that ever? And uh, the, be the first position player ever to win as a Chicago Cub. Uh, is, is, was that a surprise to you to hear that, that it was a, uh, something that had never happened before? Yeah, and- yeah, for sure. Because you'd think that it's been around so long. You know, baseball's been around so long, especially in Chicago and the Cubs organization and franchise. You would think that in one of those years, I mean, man, we took 108 years to win a World Series again. So in one of those 108 years, maybe somebody would have done something like that. But, you know, the answer was no. It was, it was very, very surprising to me. Uh, but then again, how often do you, does it really ever happen like this? I mean, every time a position player is in the game, when John Jay pitches, it's because we're down 14. Right. You know, right. When, when David Ross or Miguel Montero pitched, it was because we were down 12 or 10 or 15 or it's not even close. And, and we're saving arms, guys that could pitch. This was a situation, and I think kind of uh, a, a, good, a cool one in a way, in that it wasn't I was doing it because we're trying to save people. It was I was doing it because there was literally nobody else to do it. That was it. And I was going to be if I if if we hadn't scored that next inning, I was in it for the long haul. If I had to throw fifteen innings myself, I was throwing fifteen innings oh, myself. No, nobody else, nobody else was coming in. Nobody was going to save me. Well, well, you had a uh, see. Well, you had a fastball that was uh, officially recorded as a changeup, and uh, <laughs> a, a knuckleball that you threw, mm-hmm. and a sinker that Lester Strode taught you right before you went in there. That's, oh, yeah, that's yeah. We, what MLB said anyway about it. That's absolutely true. So I threw, um, I threw my. He took. He told me to take my thumb and move it higher on the baseball so the ball would run. Because my goal and anybody that ever and I recommend most fans to do this: go one day to Wrigley and watch batting practice and watch how many times the best players in the world, the best players in the world, miss hit and ground out and pop up against a guy standing out there fifty feet away throwing fifty miles an hour right down the middle. You'd be surprised at how bad batting practice can really, really, really affect 
very good hitters, right? They want the ball in certain places. They want to work on stuff so that they can react in the game. So I knew if I could make the ball move enough and I could throw it close enough to their eyes, they're going to swing because it's going to be slow. It's going to be weird. And further, all of the pressure is on them. That's what people don't realize too. Even to this day, when I watch position players pitch, I get nervous for the guy hitting. <laughs> because I go, man, I remember that feeling like you're supposed to get a hit against these guys. You're supposed to be successful when in reality, I don't know. I, I would love to see what the position player pitching batting average against over time in, in the history of baseball is because I can't imagine it's that high. Well, I know Walt Weiss uh, was quoted after that game. The manager of the Rockies is saying that it's hard for guys to slow their bat down to be able yeah. to. It, it's, it's almost like they have got to catch up to the ball in a whole other way. Than, uh, than when you're throwing, you know, a roll this Chapman 103 mile per hour fastballs. Uh, it's just, it's, I guess it's a different thing. So, uh, well, uh, anything else you'd like to add about that game? Like, how did you feel afterwards? Like, you get the win. I like, was sore. You- <laughs> I was sore. I was sore as hell the next day. I, had to ca- I caught 10 innings. We lost the next innings. The next game, I caught 10 after that game. Um, how did I feel? So, after that game, we celebrated like we won the World Series. I mean, I've never been a part. I've never been a part of a celebration like that in a in a locker room. Um, we came in. I mean, we had we had it planned out that if we had walked off and like we did, there was not going to be any celebrating on the field. We were just going to run into the clubhouse so we could go home. And so we ran in, and it was just such a crazy experience. And it was in the old locker room in Wrigley, which is now the the home side batting cage. And I came in, and there was like strobe lights going off and uh and like a disco ball and there was there people everybody had beers out as i came in and i i, I kind of got carried around the locker room um <laughs> cool. well we well we just well we well we crushed beers and all the way into the bathroom and they put me in the bathroom on the ground in the shower and they poured everything uh every liquid object from milk to beer to shampoo on top of me like you get a beer shower so that's one of the things that we did one of the traditions we had as the cubs was if a pitcher came up and got his first win or a player got his first hit or hit his first homer or got their first save, right? Uh, and it's anything that was uh, like a landmark event for their career, you get a beer shower. So what you do is you go and you sit down in the middle of the shower in Wrigley and everybody on the team comes in with a beer, you shake it up and we, we pour it on their head while they sit there. Well, this was an everything shower and it lasted for so long that I kind of had a mini panic attack that I wasn't going to be able to breathe again because <laughs> ev- there was just waves of shampoo and milk and booze pouring all over me as we celebrated and then then i got home uh and my wife and children had left the game and so i got home and i wake up i wake up my wife megan you need to wake up we need to talk she goes what happened i go listen i pitched and she's like what you know she's kind of half hazy i go and i I got the win in the game and she couldn't believe it what the hell are you talking about (laughs) she thought i was kidding we got home at 2 30 in the morning i think or three in the morning and then it was up again for a birthday party the next day Justin Ruggiano's son's birthday party the next day at like 9 a.m. So we were to sleep, sleep fast, wake up the next day. The whole side of my body from landing and throwing the ball because pitching also throwing downhill is something I never practiced. You don't, uh-huh. you don't step with like a two-foot drop like that and throw the ball. So the left side of my body was sore. And we strapped it on and, uh, and played 10 and lost in extra innings the next day. And if I remember right, the guy who started the game the day after John Baker did, I think, was Brett Anderson. For the Rockies, I think I got to go look, but I, I believe uh, I don't because you played the Rockies again at Wrigley Field the next night, right? 
Yes. Is it, and then you flew to L.A. the game after that, I believe, because I actually went out to L.A. No, he was, but he was on the, I think he was on the Rockies was at the time. on the Rockies at the, oh, so it wasn't the Dodgers. No, I think I'll it was have, the Rockies. I'll have to look that up. Uh, July 30th. I won't do it right now because it'll, it'll take up internet. Precious, precious internet. But, um, so let, let's move on. Um, so you played one year in Chicago. You were drafted by the A's, four years in Miami, two years in San Diego, and just the one year with the Cubs. So um, what – and now you work with the Cubs again as the mental uh, skills coordinator. What is the difference about playing in Chicago and being a part of the Cubs – I guess the Cubs community and the Cubs fan community than other teams that you've been associated with and that maybe you're still in contact with? Uh, I think it's there's just a greater level of authenticity um, in Chicago. You know, I mean, fans will you know, they'll let you know what they think of you on the field. Uh, they're not afraid to kind of hold back, uh, you know, booing poor performance or whatever. But I think that's something that any athlete accepts. If you're not playing up to, you know, your perceived capabilities, then yeah, those boos are would be coming from you yourself. Um, but I also think that the difference about Chicago and obviously I played there before the world series, but the difference about Chicago is, is just the, the overwhelming level of support. You know, they support us in Miami sure. And they, and, and there was nice fans in San Diego, but they weren't too, uh, I, I don't think they didn't have, they don't have the history or, you know, it's not familial fans, you know, it's not generational fans where when I went to the world series last year, I'm sitting next to a, a family of grandfather, father, and son all at the game and all on the edge of their seat. You know, baseball is deeply rooted in the history of the city, uh, in the history of that ballpark. And so walking out there every day, there, there were so many moments that I had where I stepped out up to the home plate and I looked out at the field and I thought, holy shit, this is where Babe Ruth called a shot. Yeah. And I'm standing right here. Or I'd come to the field someday and I would, I'd walk into the dugout and I'd look down at the end of the dugout. You know, maybe I'm feeling down that day. I'm not playing again. And I come into the dugout a little early for BP. I look down to the right and I go, oh, hey, there's Ernie Banks. I'm going to go talk to Ernie for a while. And, and every conversation you ever had with Ernie Banks, you never left feeling like you felt before. You, you left noticeably happier and more upbeat after talking to him. And so having those people around, uh, having that kind of supportive fan community, I mean, and I'm talking not just about fans too, but the ushers that work at the field, uh, the people that did the, um, uh, the valet for the parking lot, uh, the, the, the people that, that ran our, uh, our family room. I mean, these are people that we still send Christmas cards to, my family, because it's, it's, it's just a different vibe. There's, there's, a, there's, not, there's not the same differentiation between the player and the people that work at Wrigley. It's like we're all going to work together. Uh, when, when you show up at that ballpark and you feel the same way uh, about the fans, like they're there, these fans are there, they've stuck through it for so long and they're here to support us to win the game. And that's something that you feel in Chicago more than any other city. So, and you're still with the, the organization. I guess there was a year in which I, you went to the Mariners and then, uh, then you decided to retire from, from there um, and then within that year, you were back as the mental skills coordinator for the Cubs, uh, which, man, great timing. <laughs> Talk about great <laughs> yeah, timing. Right. Come back. Oh, yeah, 2015. Oh, I'm hired. Oh, great. Let's go win a World Series. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so what the heck does a mental skills coordinator do? Because um, I think it's a position that people don't even know exists, you know, it, it, within a baseball organization. Well, I think that my main job is to take my experience and help people that are trying to do the same things that I did, uh, do them more efficiently and do them better. And, and, and I also think that what I try to do too, um, for my 
from I, I take my experience and I, you know, I talked to Josh Lifrak, our director, Ray Fuentes, who's in charge of our uh, uh, Latin American program. Um, I take, you know, their ideas that are founded and rooted in academia and translate them for the baseball field. Uh, translate them to our players because I can speak both languages. I can talk to you about Kant, but I can also talk to you and, and I would way rather talk to you about hitting approach. So when we hear about, you know, this is how people should think about this, or this is this mindfulness program, or we're going to, or we're going to institute a, a, you know, we're going to institute meditation practice uh, at the lower levels of the minor leagues and see how it goes. I can go in and talk to our players and explain how, you know, this is a concentration exercise and this is going to get you better at getting back to what you originally are intending to do every time you're on the mound or in the batter's box. Uh, this is the heart rate where you best perform. And now let's learn some exercises for how you can kind of get into that state so that you can be the best player that you can be. So it's not about, um, you know, I, I think it's hard. It's really hard to quantify our impact on the organization because we don't we don't have a lot of testing that we do. Um, but I do know that what I do get back is feedback. And so I was just in Des Moines visiting our AAA team. I was there with them for four days. And my, the main purpose of my visit initially was to kind of allay those September fears that those guys have because this is the time where guys start checking rosters. And the moment you're thinking about something other than what you're supposed to be doing on the baseball field, the moment you're committing less than 100% intent to uh, the move that you're making, the pitch you're throwing, or the, or the bat that you're swinging, you're not you're at your best. You're not at your best, and, and you're trying to get to the major leagues, and I tried to get to the major leagues for a long time, and I tried a lot of different routes, and I tried a lot of different things, and so I take that experience, uh, and I share it with our minor league players, and I kind of feel like a camp counselor that's just on the path. I'm still hanging out on the path, and people get to the next tree, and there I am, and they say, hey, which way do I need to go? I was thinking about this way, and I was thinking about that way, and I can say, hey, I've been that way. That way stinks. I've been that way, too. That was a bad idea. My best shots were those two paths over there. So why don't you try those two different things and see what works best for you and give me some feedback and, and, and we'll collaborate and work together. And, uh, you know, you hear a lot about special assistants. Like David Ross is a special assistant for, uh, for the president of the team, right? He's, he reports to Theo Epstein. I, I consider myself now, this year, I'm a special assistant to our players. So whatever they need. Uh, and, and when I go to Chicago and I work with our guys there, it's usually completely different. It's you know, taking Jake Arrieta places in Chicago where nobody recognizes him, where we can go look at some nature stuff and, and get his mind off of what he's doing or, or figure out a good restaurant to take him to when I go visit the team in San Diego and he's got to start the next day. Uh, and, and I get to kind of be a part of the support staff like that. And, and it's great for me because I played with a lot of these pitchers um, and, and a lot of these guys were my teammates or, or former competitors. And so whatever I can do to help them out. Uh, my job varies from the lower levels to the higher levels, uh, which is fun because it stays novel every time I go. Uh, but I really enjoy the work that I get to do, and I feel like I have a positive impact on the organization. So that makes me happy. So uh, people reach out to you, but does like Jason McLeod ever call you and say, "Hey, go straighten out this guy down at Double A"? You know, he's got a screw loose or something. You know, or or, or is it mostly like an ongoing conversation that you have uh, with the players? Like they come to you. Or do you kind of see, hey, this guy seems like he's in trouble. Like maybe I'll go have a conversation to bring him out to lunch. Yeah, no, we definitely, we definitely have direction like that sometimes where, you know, there's issues in certain places, then it's time for us to spend some more time there. We do, we do target surgically sometimes, but generally when we, when we build this, when we build our schedule out in the beginning of the season, what we're trying to do is uh, at the end of spring training, we kind of, we also kind of figure out, okay, these are the these are these are the groups of players that I seem to fit, fit in best with, or these are the players where I'm needed. Uh, for, as an example, I spent some time before we traded him. I, I spent quite a bit of time with Dylan Cease. You know, he was looking like one of our biggest pitching prospects, 
and he's a smart kid that, that asks a lot of really kind of questions that sometimes uh, seem to befuddle some of the, you know, the traditional baseball coaches. And so that's, that's somebody for me to kind of try to tackle and, 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 and help him out frequently. And I stayed on the phone with him a lot before he got traded. And uh, so we do it surgically as well. But when we build our schedule out, we say, okay, you know, I, I really seem to fit in best with our low A team and our, and our triple A team and our major league team. So that's where I spend the majority of, of my time. Uh, and our director, Josh Lifrak, seems to spend most of his time in Myrtle Beach in Tennessee. Uh, and then Darnell McDonald this year has been with our major league team almost the entire time. So that's been nice because I don't have to do as much work in Chicago, and as much as I love our our major league team, man, that's the, the, the for our job. That's the biggest challenge because <laughs> because their problems are just so unrealistic. They're so unrealistic and and crazy. You know, like you'll have Chris Bryant talking about how he can't even go outside because yeah, everybody recognizes him. I'm like I'm like Chris, I can't help you there, man. I was just, <laughs> I, we need to call we need to call like Dwayne Wade or Michael Jordan and get him in or Steph Curry <laughs> and have them talk to you guys about what it's like to be a celebrity. And that's been another interesting thing that I've noticed this year. And a change, you know, I, I, when I, when I go out with some of these guys that are my friends, you know, like when I see Anthony Rizzo, I don't see the superstar. I see the 21 year old kid I met in the Dominican Republic when he was playing for the Padres. Like that's the kid that I see. He's still a kid to me. And so I see Riz and then he walks outside and everybody starts running up to him. And I'm like, Oh, I forgot. I forgot you're a superstar. Dang it. How could I forget? You know, I, I work for the organization, but when I see them, uh, you know, I see my friends and I think that another thing that, 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 uh, that I provide in this job is kind of that we were talking about authenticity earlier, mm-hmm. that level of authenticity that those guys know that I'm not there to suck up to them. You know, they they know that we've, I've, I've done, I've gone to battle with those guys and we've definitely gotten in our arguments and I've told them how I feel in the past and they, and they, and they treat me with respect because I treat them with respect and I care about their careers, but I'm not, I'm not another yes man coming in telling them how great they are. And I think that they get enough of that. Well, it's it's a unique job that I, I think is important uh, with all the extra pressures that are put on Major League Ball players right now, like the the well, I mean all the the fame and the fortune of it. You know that wasn't always the case before, uh, throughout the you know throughout the history of baseball, and and now, you know you're always on TV, you're always doing uh, a commercial, you're you know you're constantly asked to promote this or promote that, and there's just so much money and time and uh, I could see how that extra stress could really take a toll especially on a guy that's 23 years old you know that you mm-hmm. know goes from zero to hero in a year so it's, it's a it's a, a unique position that you find yourself in and um, I hope you stay with the organization organization for a long time um, I have a couple listener questions if, if you got a moment to, to get into it. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do, the, let's, let's do those listener questions. Then I got to jump on carpool. Sounds good. <laughs> um, so uh, this is kind of related is uh, you're, you're in the organization now. Uh, do you have any uh, kind of uh, goal in being like one of the uniformed coaches that is in the dugout every game? Um, you know, like a Dave Martinez or somebody. Do you have a goal in that mind of in that mindset to? eventually do that no no i i'm as i've as i've you know investigated this other side of professional baseball i think that my passion really is in player development i really enjoy you know meeting these guys when they're 16 to 21 and then helping them on their way and then seeing them you know do big things i think that for me it's it's like the work i got to do with wilson Contreras last year you know i spent a lot of time with him in spring training and i visited him frequently in the beginning of the season in triple a and just to kind of see his his maturity him get to the big leagues, and I was just so proud to see him start Game 7 of the World Series or, to, or the home run that he hit off of Kershaw last year or the way he's been swinging the bat now. Um, 
I, and not that, you know, I, when I say proud, I was just around. I was just around and I offered, you know, two cents of advice every once in a while and it was all him. But, you know, to be able to support something like that and, and I, I never want to be, uh, you know, I, I went to the ballpark every single day for a long time uh, and I, I loved my job as a baseball player. Uh, and I love the fact that I can go back, you know, 10 or so days a month to the field and put the uniform on and go out and hang out with the guys. But it's time for me. I think my brain works in a way where it's just it's not enough. Being a major league coach wouldn't be enough for me. I need to continue my education. I need to work on problems that are more complex and more difficult uh, than just that's the steal sign you need to run um, or, <laughs> you know, back, back, back at first base. That that to me isn't enough of a of a challenge, I think. And, and I, I like what I'm doing now. And I have little kids as well. So that schedule, uh, that major league schedule, minor league schedule does not appeal to me. So, uh, so you didn't call Theo when they released Miguel Montero and say, hey, uh, hey Theo, uh, you know, you're looking for a veteran guy that can still get behind the plate. You know, uh, I might be uh, the guy, you know, you didn't do that. Uh, no, I didn't do that. I did. It. Well, you know, I knew. And, and again, I, I spent a lot of time with our AAA team. So. When that happened, I, immediately in my head, I started running through my head, man, who are we going to call up? Are we going to call up Victor Caratini? Are we going to call up Taylor Davis? Because, uh, you know, both guys are both guys are assets to this organization. Uh, both guys are very good players. Both guys are having good years in AAA, and they can really catch. And so having spent so much time with those guys, my first thought when Miggy got released was I was just so excited to see who was going to get to make their major league debut. And it's another one of these guys that's come through our system uh, that we've um, I think we got Caratini in a trade for Bonifacio in, in, in 14 and, and converted him fully to a catcher and, and the improvements that he's made and, and the year that he's having offensively in AAA, he's hitting 340 or 350, he's done great. So I was just I was way more excited to see those guys come up and, and see somebody else start to make their own career and, and blaze their own trail. Uh, and uh, you know our friend Matt Kammerer, the guy who painted, you know, the, the artist yeah. Matt Kammerer, it, he wrote in this question – because uh, we've seen Wilson Contreras take it in the family jewels quite a few times this year and, and a little bit last year. Why doesn't he wear a cup? <laughs> does What? He does. He does wear a cup. Well, then on, what's, going <laughs> what's going on? It still hurts. It still hurts, man. It still hurts. It's, it's, we, haven't perfected, we haven't perfected protecting the jewels yet. Yeah. Um, Nut, Nutty Buddy makes a good cup if anybody out there is looking for them. My favorite one personally is, uh, I think it's, I believe they're a Chicago-based company that a lot of our guys are wearing. I got them kind of in touch with us, but uh, it's, a, it's an MMA like kickboxing cup called Diamond, Diamond MMA. They make a, if you're, if you're on the rec softball league and you're worried about getting hit in the balls, that's the way to go. Get that Diamond MMA cup. They're, they're really good. That's, that's what we've been recommending to some of the guys, but still it doesn't matter. Just the way that they're shaped uh, any little tap sometimes, it just takes the right little tap. You get hit right in the nuts, and you can go ahead and sit down for about five minutes before the feeling, pull, before the feeling not comes back but goes away. Yeah, it's, it's been kind of a rough uh, year for Wilson. I mean, I just never see it so much than with Wilson Contreras. So it, there's something going on with him specifically. <laughs> Those little taps seem to affect him more than that, just about everybody else. Well, and hopefully, I, it, listen, if him getting hit in the nuts is what's leading to him hit, hitting baseballs like he's hitting right now, I might, fly, I might fly to Chicago and kick him in the balls daily. <laughs> So, uh, all right, last question, uh, just because I know you got to go, um, and it's maybe a little bit involved, but the last year that you played was the last year of the old catching rules of blocking the plate in 2014. Then they changed the, the rule. Now you can't block the plate unless you have possession of the ball. Um, how do you feel about these rules? And um, do you, I don't, well, that's just it. How do you feel about the new rule? 
Well, I feel I feel two completely different ways about these rules. I feel like it's a great idea to try to protect the assets that we have catching. And and you know, in no other position on the field are you looking at something else with looming physical danger about to happen. And no other sport, you know, in, in baseball, we're the, that catcher's gear. We're not padded for impact. You know, it's not football. It's this isn't like a punt where you've at least got a face mask and, and you've got shoulder pads on and you've got a barrier in between you and the other people, the other person, you've got something that's supposed to protect you from a tiny little baseball. Uh, that's it. That's what those chest protectors do in those shin guards. They're not, they're not braced for, you know, hard, like body to body physical impact and contact. So I, I understand the idea and I know that the, this all came about because my friend, Scott cousins, my teammate at the time ran over Buster Posey and Buster was in a bad position and his metal spike stuck, and he got hurt because he, he executed poor technique. Um, and I, I, and after that happened and that big asset for the Giants went down, Major League Baseball started scrambling, trying to figure out something to do. So they started to try to institute these rules. For a long time, when, they, when the f- rules first came into play, guys didn't even understand what was happening. You know, We were still told, uh, 14, 15, to just play it like usual. Just play it like usual. Um, the competitor in me and the catcher in me thinks it's a thinks that we should be fair game and you should be able to run run us over whenever you want. I think that that's I I, 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 I as a sensation seeking individual, um, I looked forward to those moments because uh, those were moments for me in my career coming up where I kind of really bonded myself with my teammates. I can remember my first game in Double A. There was a fly ball to right field in Round Rock. Play at the plate, I got run over. I held onto the ball, and it was my first game catching, and I was the youngest guy on the team. And I come back into the dugout and I hear comments like, hey, the new guy's got some balls or like, you know, like this is what we need around. You know, you, you start to if you're willing to make that sacrifice, uh, if you're willing to take it, um, then it's, it's a whole lot. It was a whole lot easier for me to relate to my pitchers after that. It was a whole lot easier for them to know that I was in it for everybody else's success and not just my own. And so in a way, we've taken that away from the catcher. We've taken away that kind of a possibility to gain a leadership role is gone because he can't sacrifice himself as much. Now, like I said, I believe two things about it. One, that's gone and that's sad. And I think that it should be full contact. I think that the rules at second base are stupid, but I'm, I'm for Pete Rose style play. Uh, I'm not for, I'm not for station to station baseball stride straight into the bag. Let's put an orange base at first base. I'm, I'm not for those. I'm not for those things. Uh, I, I like, I like a little bit of danger. I think it makes the game exciting, uh, and I think it's necessary. But at the same time, these guys are so good at the skills. They're so good at fielding and throwing and hitting that you just don't want to see them miss any time. Sure. You know, I'd be, I'd be devastated if Wilson Contreras got run over and blew out his ACL and couldn't play anymore. It'd break my heart. Yeah. Uh, I think I feel that way about anybody that plays baseball. You don't want to see those guys get hurt. And I saw a lot of injuries uh, in my time. But at the same time, from my experience as a player, I don't like the I don't like the new rules. I don't like the idea that you got to get out of way and now and and now everybody can hook slide and it just it just it's changed the way the game is played. I think not too much to affect it, but enough to affect it on a again on a non quantifiable way with that catcher in the clubhouse. Sure. And uh, the last thing is, uh, you know, in all the pictures I find of you online on uh, you know uh, Baseball Reference on the MLB site. They got you in a damn Mariners hat. Is there anything oh. you can do <laughs> to to call up, you know, the you know the commissioner and uh, and you know whoever you got to call and get oh. yourself changed into a Cubs hat? Mariners, Mariners hat. God, <laughs> this stinks. I don't want to wear a Mariners hat for forever. Was, it's gonna be up there yeah. forever. You know, I'm on it. I'm gonna I'm gonna go about that one myself. I'm gonna email Baseball Reference. 
and ask him to please change the picture. Yeah, it's it's uh, got to be a Cubs hat. I'm looking at it right here. There you are at a damn Mariners hat. It's just so disappointing. Uh, yeah, it's – it's um, so, uh, well, thanks for coming on the show. And, uh, I mean, as always, you know, you're one of the most fascinating people that uh, can talk about the game that we all love in such a, a thoughtful way that uh, I, th- I know people really appreciate it. And last year on John Baker Day, when we all got together at the Nisei Lounge, I know a lot of people told me, they said, I didn't know he was that smart, <laughs> you know. Well, neither did I. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just like the, the insight and the perspective that you have is so appreciated because uh, you're a very honest person and, um, and, and funny and lively, and I know we're going to have a great time. Uh, it's a shame that we couldn't do it on July 29th this year, but it just didn't work out. Next um, year. Next year, though, it's, it's, it's a must because, uh, you know, when I, I, was, I was hurting when I saw the Cubs tweeting out about Job Baker Day and everything. On the actual day, I said, damn it, this should be when we're doing this event. We'd have all this support. But instead, uh, we're doing it on the 19th. But either way, we're going to have a great time. Uh, tickets are selling fast. We got the bobbleheads. We got the cameras going to show up with a bunch of prints to sell. Awesome. And, uh, and um, yeah, and so we're going to do more of this. And uh, I'm going to surprise you with a little game that I've I've kind of rigged up. <laughs> Great. Called, well, if you know, I, I don't even watch this show, but it's, I think it's called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? I, oh, man. I, I thought we'd do Are You Smarter Than a John Baker? Oh, fine. Yeah, so uh, just to, to see what you remember about your uh, your Cubs playing career, and we'll just do one year. We'll narrow it down to just 2014 right. and see what you remember about uh, that that magical transitional year for the Chicago hey. Cubs, because Lord knows that uh, everything's been much better since you took the mound that fateful night on uh, July 29th. Uh, the Cubs have a have a winning record since then, and that's uh, not a lot of players yes, can do. say that who have played for the Chicago Cubs. Turned it all around with 11 pitches, Danny. Yep, that's, that's all it was. A couple of knuckleballs and a, and, uh, and a sinker you learned from Lester Strode about 10 yeah. minutes before you went out there. That's all it takes. I, I love it. Well, thanks for coming on the show, John, and we'll see you in about a week and a half. And Sounds um, good, Danny. Looking forward to Chicago on the 19th at the Nisei Lounge. It's going to be a good time. Everybody should come out, have a beer with me, and ha- I'll be drinking beer this time, unlike last time. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be drinking some beers this time and just hanging out and watching the baseball game, and, and uh, I'm looking forward to being with the people of Chicago. Man, those are the, like I said, like we were talking about earlier, being in that city, I look forward to things like this. I don't think a lot of former players do, but I look forward to it because you guys and, and, the, and the people that support this team are, will, I'll forever remember. Uh, you guys are just as much, as much a part of that championship as, as our players were. So I appreciate you guys as well. I'm looking forward to hanging out. Well, thanks, John, and uh, I'll see you next Saturday. All right, bye-bye. Later, brother. Bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope to see you at Nisei Lounge on August 19th at 11 a.m. All the info you need is at sunranto.com. Click the John Baker Day link. That's S-O-N-R-A-N-T-O dot com. There's all sorts of ways you can be a part of it, so thanks. Peace. Catcher got the win. I showed up down at Wrigley with a belly full of gin. I knew it would be a long one, and when Jackson was pitching, the night the backup catcher got the win. And when Jackson only lasted four, the game was tied for 12 more innings, nobody could score. We went to Captain Morgan's because we wanted to drink more. The 
night the backup catcher got the win. It was the night the backup catcher got the win. Got the win. It was the night the backup catcher got the win. Got the win. Sat in the upper deck with three of my best friends. The night the backup catcher got the win. Just outside to have a smoke But as we stood beyond the gates Captain Morgan's closed We got left outside And we couldn't get back in The night the backup catcher got the win We were three sheets to the wind And overserved, And we couldn't get back to our seats In upper deck reserved So we watched the game from the dugout On Addison The night the backup catcher got the win it was the night the backup catcher got the win. Got the win. It was the night the backup catcher got the win. Got the win. Got sick outside of Wrigley from mixing beer and gin. The night the backup catcher got the win. And then as the story's told, John Baker, the Cubs' backup catcher, took the mound in the top of the 16th inning, pitching a scoreless frame, facing the minimum. Then in the bottom of the 16th inning, John came to the plate and took a walk. Then he ended up on third base somehow, at which point Starlin Castro hit a sacrifice fly, winning the game! John Baker finally won it in 16 on the most exciting sack fly this baseball fan has seen. But I sort of missed it, I was drunk as Charlie Sheen. The night the backup catcher got the win. It was the night the backup catcher got the win. Got the win. It was the night the backup catcher got the win. Got the win. Oh, they threatened us with handcuffs when we tried to sneak back in. The night the backup catcher got the win. Got the win. It was the night the backup catcher got the win. Got the win. It was the night the backup.